Politics matters. It's where important decisions about policy are taken. It's about the power relations that determine the distribution of resources in society. And it's where our social and economic destinies are often determined. Through insightful commentary and in-depth interviews with experts, The Critical Take with me, Nobumela Larunji, takes a comprehensive look at political and socioeconomic developments and public policies that affect people's lives. Hello and welcome to The Critical Take with me, Nompumelelo Runji. In this episode, we are exploring apartheid's lasting effect on the collective psyche of South African society. The year 1994 is widely considered as the year South Africa finally delivered freedom to the black and African majority after centuries of oppression under colonial and apartheid regimes. However, South African society remains deeply violent and the trauma of the past remains evident in the present situation in the country. Nomfunda Mukhapi, Executive Director of the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, argues that South Africa is a wounded nation. And until and unless it grapples with the psychosocial effects of apartheid, freedom will remain elusive. You have been able to marry two disciplines of sociology and psychology, which have vastly different analytical uh, foci or focal points. And your background is in clinical psychology, and you have been able to use your discipline to provide a lens through which to understand the political and socioeconomic situation in South Africa. And that's why I'm really interested to get into this conversation with you, actually. Um, so you have come up with a theory um, of collective trauma. And you use this theory to sort of explain the situation when we see in South African communities today. Talk us through your theory of how the collective violence in South Africa today is a manifestation of the collective trauma of apartheid on the one hand and the paradoxical new democracy on the other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me and, and for this, I think, very important discussion. It's time that we really need to pause and tell and ask ourselves what is happening in our country. Mm. And I think there's a lot of stuff that's happening. We begin to understand that Maybe there's something that has gone wrong at a socioeconomic level, and we're beginning to talk about that as a country. But I think that we still haven't had sufficient discussions at what we might have left out at a psychological level. And I think there's a lot of some of the challenges that we have in our country, including the collective violence that is very much shaped by the unresolved psychological issues um, that we actually have in our country. So I started working on this construct of collective trauma, interestingly, in 2008, after the eruption of the xenophobic violence. And media started calling us and saying, you know, you psychologists, you are working with trauma, can you explain what is happening? And I really found that, you know, the, the, the individual approach that I learned at university and my own experience in having worked with victims of violence on one-on-one -on -one was not sufficient. So um, as I was looking then, I came across this work on collective trauma which for me made so much sense in terms of what is happening in our country. Because 
the idea of collective trauma comes basically from these two schools of thoughts that helps us to understand it. There is a school of thought that talks about what they call a chosen trauma. And they say that um, at any one time, and by collectives we meaning um, it could be societies, it could be a community, it could even be an organization. Mm -hmm. They could have a chosen trauma. So this is a trauma that has not been dealt with. Um, it's a trauma where the losses have not um, been faced or mourned. So one of the biggest components of the traumas in, of apartheid, of course, is the loss of people's dignity and self-worth. Mm -hmm. Um, the loss of people's humanity where, on the other hand, you know, one group is told that you are less than because of your skin color, and the other group is told that you are better than because of your oppressing another. And we haven't faced that, we haven't grieved that, we haven't fully understood what it means, and of course, I mean, I don't need to unpack the levels of pain and trauma and losses that has happened as a result of that. So according to me, really, I argue that we have this as a chosen trauma, which um, is now even being transferred to the next generation and that is shaping the kinds of violence that we have in our country. And then there's also a school of um, theory that talks about cultural trauma and it says that, you know, at the times there could be certain changes in society or collectives, which could, um, which sometimes when people bring them, their plan is that they should be positive, but the way in which they happen, they could cause, they could cause more trauma. And my argument is that uh, perhaps the way in which we've introduced our democracy with this promise of a better life for mm -hmm. all, where people thought my life is going to change immediately, the suddenness with which, with, with, with which it has happened and how it has excluded other my, uh, people has actually resulted in another level of, of, of the trauma of our democracy, which is really a paradox. Because people kept on being promised, but they find that they are still re-experiencing the apartheid that mm -hmm. we have, right? So my, my argument then is that these unresolved traumas have actually shaped the way in which our society interacts with the current challenges that South Africa is facing. Mm -hmm. um, and we usually talk about, you know, the socioeconomic yes. challenges. So I say to people, if you appreciate and you understand collective trauma, you will first of all understand that um, issues of poverty, uh, for most people, is not just a socioeconomic issue, but it's also a, a psychological issue. Because we know that part of the chosen the trauma of apartheid is that people were excluded. There was a design to exclude people socioeconomically. And so exclusion for most of the people in this country comes triggers people and make them remember this painful trauma of the past. Mm. So being in poverty is not just about, oh, I'm poor now, but it's about saying I am re-experiencing the very same pain that I experienced during apartheid and that my parents have experienced. And then I also talked about um, the issue of um, an unemployment. So we do a lot of work as CSVR in the communities, and we also work with victims here. And one of the things that we, we, we are picking up, um, especially amongst the, the, the younger generation, is, is just this desperate sense of, of being stuck. So for them, unemployment says, you know, even if I have a degree, even if I try, the likelihood that I'm going to get a job is very slim. Mm. And it's not just the pain of, of, of a lack of a future that you want. So for most of these is that, the same pain that my parents lived with in apartheid is the same 
um, pain at a psychological level is the mm. same trauma that I'm going to be stuck with. So for most people, when they go out and they, and, and, and they fight for access to service delivery, to jobs, to all of that, it's not just about um, their own emancipation, it's the undoing of this unbearable pain that they sit with. And I think because we don't understand it as a society, we, the things that we see seem almost like unexplainable. Like, okay, you are angry, but if you are angry, why go ban buildings? Why go mm. ban people? Mm. But what you see me do is an external, externalization of this level of psychic trauma that I am actually experiencing. So, so that it's the, and the inequality makes it, it even worse because it brings in the, the emotions of shame which are very much linked with our collective trauma. I mean, the whole design of the apartheid system was to shame people, you know, to, to make people feel that you as a person are wrong, there is something wrong with you. And so for most people, is not only do I not have a job, not only am I stuck, but there's these people who rub it at my face. Mm. And, and there's a lot of question also, to, I mean, of course, to be raised uh, in relation to what we call the black diamonds, you know, because these black diamonds, the majority of them are people who have had a lived experience of apartheid, but they've never dealt with their trauma. They've never dealt with, it's just this sense that's so ingrained in your psyche that you are not enough, that you are not worthy. It's, it's, and I don't think we've fully appreciated how much it is just part and parcel of the psyche of the African people. But then what happens is you go and get a job. You know, what happens? Then that thing begins to fill that hole to define you. So these emerging black diamonds, they show off, you know, they show, they show off their wealth, the big cars, they go to the townships. And, and it, is, it is part of their own trauma to say that, you know, see me, I'm going to show you, because I was never seen when I, when I grow up, this is my pain. But what that does for those who are stuck, it creates this sense of shame, like you're almost the same age of, as me, why am I not as mm. successful as you are? And you are rubbing it on my face. And of course, there's a whole dynamic of how then the emerging uh, middle class and the historical sort of middle and upper class treat people that are poor. Because in South Africa, the same way of, of, of treating people that we think are less than us, the same way of, of um, stripping them of their dignity still happens over and over again. So we have this ticking time bomb, of course, in, in our country of this um, what we also talk about in collective trauma is transgenerational trauma, mm. where the pain of the present generation has been transferred to their sons and daughters. And we have done research, for example, at Sinsfar, where we've shown that if the present generation does not deal with this trauma, then the next generation, instead of spending their time and energy rebuilding the country, rebuilding democracy, they spend their energy trying to undo the, the, the pains of the past. But if they are not even aware that these pains of the past has caused me so much pain, they deal with them by lashing out in anger mm. and lashing out in frustration because that is the pain that is talking. What even complicates it more is that part of the trauma of apartheid is this very unhealthy way of dealing with power and authority. So those who were in power and authority abused their power, they treated others as less than. And at a psychic level, we've modeled that. Mm. So what's happening is that even though the face of those in power is increasingly changing, I mean, we know economically it is still very white, 
But if you close your eyes, they are treating people exactly the same way that they used to be treated. Yes. But there's also this strong sense of entitlement, like, no, you can never say I'm doing that because we are so blind hmm. to how we are becoming exactly like our oppressors. So the laws have changed. We're in the new democracy. But the psyche that actually drove apartheid still exists in present-day South Africa in how we treat those that have and those that don't and in the behaviors of actually those who have, which then explains the level of violence that we are seeing. Because for me, the service delivery, mm -hmm. it's a cry of those who are exposed to these injustices, yeah. who are saying you need to hear us, you need to hear not just our socioeconomic cry, but you also have to understand the psychological pain that we are actually in. And then, of course, we've got those who are in power who completely don't hear. And it's just continuing to build up. And the more they don't listen and the more they become arrogant about it, the more um, radicalized the other group is becoming. Now, so what is the relationship between this, this trauma you speak of then mm. and the high rates of contact crimes, gender-based violence, abuse, sexual offenses, rape, the exploitation of the weak and vulnerable? I'm talking about children, the ah. elderly, people with disabilities. Um, because w what you're telling me basically says that this could actually be a response or a reaction, yeah. uh, uh, um, uh, wh what we would call a way of letting out yeah. that anger yeah. that, and that pain within yeah. Yeah. by then inflicting pain on other people. Yeah. And that's a really good point. So you just need to close your eyes and hear us talk about the states, even the recent police states in South Africa. You just need to close your eyes and hear the daily news that we hear and, and, and you can tell that guys this is not just about policing there, there is something like at a psychic level that is wrong with this country you know just the level of brutality that we are seeing so I've been then talking about this concept I don't even use trauma now anymore because you know when we went to some of these communities and we talked about trauma, some of them feel that, like it's so foreign and we asked them to say, okay, how would you describe the kinds of pains we're talking about? Mm. And the community said, you know, man, then to actually, you know, yeah. is the wound of the heart. Mm -hmm. So I now talk about woundedness, mm. that we are a wounded society. And I then say, in order for us to understand the, the, the phenomena that's happening in South Africa, whether it's around the violence or the corruption, we have to almost see ourselves as doctors with South Africa as a patient mm. that is on the room and you are analyzing it. And I, then I talk about the different levels of wounding in our mm. society. Mm. Um, so there's, there's, of course, the personal wounding where if you um, were to ask the majority of South Africans to just tell you their stories, you will realize levels of wounding from the time they were born, the relationships they've had of ho at home, because we are born with parents who themselves were wounded and they didn't know how to deal with their pain. They were never taught how to deal with their psychological pain. Mm. So they either numbed it or they projected it to the other person or they just lashed out. And we've kind of inherited those ways of coping. So we now have, you know, the current generation that is active economically, some of them are in, 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 in leadership roles but they've never dealt with their wounds. And some of them, the coping strategies that they have used in the past, they still use them now to try and cope. They carry a lot of anger and a lot of rage. 
Um, and you can see even in the violence that you see, because the violence in South Africa is like, you know, you're taking my phone, but like, why shoot me? Why kill me? Why brutalize mm. me like this? The high levels of SGBV for me, I say, you know, in psychology, so the, 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 the wound is also familial. You know, it pains me to know what's happening in the families of South Africa. It's actually happening even now. Mm. And what happens historically, just the level, first of all, of just violence, of brutalization, but just the way we treat children. You know, they are treated like, hey, you don't matter, you're not a being, you're not... And this sense of the brutalization of the South get internalized, of course. And of course, it is very patriarchal in terms of how we talk about women, how we raise girl children. So when that wound from the home has been so deep and it has created so much rage, what happens? We then produce a generation of people who are so angry and are carrying so much rage. And of course, they are going to externalize it to the other. I have been saying to people, when you when you have these this high levels of SGPV, and unfortunately most of the sexual and gender-based violence in our country is with people who are partners, you know, it's, people, yes. it's, 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 a, it's a relationship level, level yeah. where the people almost see the other as an extension of themselves. So the level of brutalization is more a reflection of just the level of the internalized brutalization that most of these men are carrying. And, and, and therefore it is, as you say, a symptom that we are seeing. Then there's a third one at an institutional level. You know, our institutions were never, were not created to, to support our sense of value and our sense of wealth. You call an ambulance, I mean, we've worked in these communities, it comes after two or three hours. Mm. You call the police, they don't, they don't even come. You come to the workplace, you are treated as less than. So all the institutions are created to actually confirm this level of brutalization and I'm less than. So you can imagine how just in different spheres this anger and brutalization is being built up. So it, now what makes it even worse is that in a society, we've got these toxic masculinities around patriarchy, which says to, to, to men and our young men that your worth depends on, first of all, of your possession of women, but it also depends on the money that you have. We tell these young men, I don't know how or what, but also you know that if I or you don't bring money. So what happens to someone who's already carrying the personal wounds, the familial wounds, these institutions, I mean, the way that um, especially black men have been treated just by the police in this institution, and the stories we hear of, of young men who will go to the shops, maybe steal a chocolate, and they will be beaten. And they will, so just that level of brutalization and then the patriarchy, and then they get in a relationship with you. What's going to happen? All that brutalization is going to be directed to the very same people that they are supposed to take care of and have a good relationship with. So the violence that we're seeing and the things that we're seeing are just but a symptom of a deeper problem, of a people who are completely asleep to themselves, to their pain, and to their wounding. And of course, when wounded people are wounded, they wound others. Hurt people hurt others. We know this in psychology. Mm, mm. And that is why the most vulnerable in a society then becomes the ones that end up getting affected. A process in this country, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which was a process that was supposed to help us to come to grips with this pain that we experienced in our past. It was supposed to be a platform that allows individuals to reflect on what they've gone through, um, 
the brutality that they went through, families to come and reflect on that, to talk about how it affected them. Um, why was this not enough? Why was the TRC uh, not enough? You know, I think Obama Madiba himself said something very powerful when he said, we have given you the freedom to be free, but we haven't given you the freedom yet. Mm. I mean, his, his own book, Long Walk to Freedom, is very telling. And I think maybe it is the lie we told ourselves that that was enough. We were not free yet. We were given all the tools that we needed. So even the TRC was a beginning of a process of healing. It did enable us as a society to once off see what has happened and acknowledge it. But the TRC was very much at a high level with very few individuals. And there wasn't sufficient work. And we had said that, you know, there has to be um, uh, emotional settlement that happens. There has to be work that happens at, a, um, at an emotional level, which included us going into communities for people to tell their stories and their experience and facilitating healing. A lot of people have remained silent and haven't talked to their daughters and their children. Abandona, they just see that mom is angry, mom is emotional, dad is angry, but we haven't told the stories of our pain because we don't know how to tell those stories. So we needed a country-wide intervention, and those were some of the recommendations that psychosocial and emotional support needed to have been integrated in the very like social fabric of our society. But you know, we thought you can just tell the story once and you close your book and mm. you move on, mm. and that's not how you deal with issues of healing. But I think what even made it more difficult, and, and in some of my work I talk about what I call wounded leadership, that the people who lead the country, whether it is at a political level or it is at a private level or civil society, uh, even in the home, right, these people who've got a, a, a leadership role are the ones who've got an important role to facilitate healing. But we, when they themselves have not dealt with their own trauma, then they shut down spaces for healing. Uh, one of their young people, I mean, it was a few years ago, said something very powerful when they, we started seeing violence in parliament. And um, uh, that young person said, you know what our problem is with our country is that our leaders entered into governance with their trauma mm. and they are leading from the perspective of their trauma. Because if trauma is not dealt with, then it becomes like the classes in which you see the world and respond from. So if at home, mother and father haven't dealt with their own trauma, they can never help children to contain and deal with their trauma. If leaders and institutions have not dealt with their trauma, they can't help the organization to facilitate it. So our biggest problem now is that the people that are leading us are themselves asleep to their wounds and their trauma. And therefore they are not able to help us to heal. But not only that, they are creating new and fresh wounds because of how they treat other people that cause even more problem. So we need to revise and go back again and do what we call uh, the TRC of the soul again in this country. But this time, instead of doing it at a high level with media, let's start it from families to schools to private organizations to hospitals and let them be, let them be an integral part of how we do things in this country. Because if we don't do that, let, let me tell you, we're going, we've seen this over and over in a number of countries in Africa where they will have... Um, 
democracy or what is seen as peace. But after 20, 20 something years, you start to see those fault lines yes. eroding and you go back into conflict. And we have been saying we are reaching a ticking time bomb in South Africa. Our young people are getting more and more angry, they're getting more and more frustrated. And our leadership is struggling to hear them and understand them. And it opens a huge gap for other people to mobilize that pain and, and create a group of people who are radicalized and who will be mind to use violence to get what they want. So we need to shift. Just on that point, uh, I wrote in a column just after the new wave of xenophobic attacks in Johannesburg yeah. that the fragile peace we had in 1994 is just not holding yeah. anymore. Yeah. One of the things um, that has really been um, mm. on my mind is whether we actually understand what apartheid was. Yeah. Because you're talking about it from a, a, a psychological perspective and, and the woundedness in our psyche, yeah. right? But a lot of the time when we talk about uh, uh, dealing with apartheid, we talk about the legacies of the past, yeah. we talk about unemployment, mm -hmm. we talk about the income gap, yeah. the wealth gap, we talk about redistribution and all of those kinds of things. And I'm wondering if one of the, the problems is that we never mm. actually came to grips with what apartheid was. Oh. Of course, uh, out, of, out of the TRC, it was said that it's a crime against humanity. Yeah. Um, now, to sort of get to my question, in my mind, there's a distinction between forgiveness, yeah. and we have this whole narrative in yeah. this country about, you know, we've forgiven, so when you forgive, you must yeah. forget, right? Yeah. There's this notion. But there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Reconciliation, in my view, in my mind, requires the perpetrator to actually also come on board and yeah. acknowledge yeah. that what I did was wrong mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I commit to not repeat the same as far as I possibly can. Yeah. Now, in, in the case of South Africa, we had on mm -hmm. the, the side of the victims in the TRC, yeah. people who were giving forgiveness. Mm -hmm. we, we had... Archbishop Tutu, we had our former uh, president, Nelson Mandela, leading us onto this path of forgiveness. And forgiveness, I feel, is something to do with your personal work, yeah. right? When yeah. you're dealing with yourself, yeah. dealing with your... But the reconciliation part ha would have required, in my view, the other side to say, we acknowledge mm. that this system was a crime yeah. against humanity. Yeah. Now, we see years later, we see former president F.W. Ditlak on the CNN somehow trying to, you know, uh, give an explanation for this, for this system. And I wonder what your view is about this, whether we have really gotten to the part where we've dealt with and accepted and mm. acknowledged what apartheid actually was yeah. so that we can actually deal with it. Mm. I know in psychology you said, uh, and uh, if you don't acknowledge the problem, you, yes. you can't deal with it, right? Yeah. Until you, yeah. you acknowledge what it is, yes. then you can't attend to it. Yeah. Have we really understood, have we really yeah. accepted, have we really yeah. acknowledged yeah. what apartheid was so that we can get to the point of dealing with it the way we're supposed to deal with mm. it as a society? Mm. Yeah, I mean, actually, even in collective trauma, we say that if, if, if trauma is not faced and dealt with, then history will repeat itself. And, and, and the more it repeats itself, the higher the price that we have to pay, the higher the level of anger. And I mean, if, if, if you can, and the people who are hearing, I'll really like encourage you to read the African Union Tribunal Justice Policy that has just been adopted, because it has been us learning from South Africa and across other countries to say, what is it that hasn't worked? 
And we then have a, a, a very good definition which speaks to the things you're talking about and what reconciliation means on the importance of ensuring non-guarantees of repetition. Mm -hmm. And for us, that's a crucial component of healing. So healing is not just about dealing with my pain, yeah. but there has to be non-guarantees of repetition. There has to be reparation for my pain. There has to be restitution. So there's, there's all these guidelines. But I think just coming back to, to your points and, and linking it maybe back to here at home in South Africa, so one of the things we've been talking about is that we, we really need to, differ, to differentiate between what we call positive peace and negative peace. Okay. Because most of the peace that tends to be perpetuated internationally by the UN and others is, is a negative mm. peace, which is mm. the absence of war. Yes. So when they look at South Africa, they're like, oh, you guys are peaceful. And we're like, no, but we want positive peace, a transformational peace. If I still wake up at home and I don't have food to eat for my children, you cannot call that peace. If I finish working at home and I'm too scared to go back home because of both the emotional and, and, and the physical violence, you cannot call that peace. If, if, if our women feel that they cannot be able to go and walk in the park because it's not safe, you cannot call that peace. So our argument is we have to begin to talk about, it's not even just about fragile peace, it's positive peace mm -hmm. that really understands that something wrong happened in the past. There's something that needs to be transformed. And transformation is not just about a, a affirmative action and access to employment, but transformation is also at a, at a psychological level at my lived experience. And you can't separate, and I've always said this argument, you can't separate the two, you know. You can't just say you are changing my socioeconomic status, but the, the same mindset is there. Or you just, other people will say, okay, just do psychological healing and heal, but I'm still hungry they have to both happen at the same time. Because it's exactly what you're saying, that we don't fully understand just the, the psychological nature of apartheid and how it was, it was designed at a psychological level. Those of us who study psychology, from the Bantu education to some of the most leading architectures of apartheid were psychologists who designed it to make us have this ingrained sense of, of being servants, of, being, of serving others. So it was a very psychological system, but it was also a very a, a strongly economic system and a political system. So we have to address all of these three. And I think that because we don't fully appreciate the, the nature and the extent of the wounding of apartheid, and we haven't fully diagnosed it or faced it, our interventions are lacking. We think that we can we go and we create great curriculum for schools but these teachers are wounding, <laughs> the children are wounded, mm -hmm. and we wonder why our education system is done when we are investing the most in it, because we haven't fully understood what it has actually done um, for us. And there's the argument around reconciliation, is to say that reconciliation is about the relationships, it's about us seeing Mabogo Bogo, yes, it's about that, that collective, but it is also about changing this lived experience, this poverty that makes me re-experience the trauma of apartheid, this inequality that makes me feel so stuck that the same trauma that my grandparents and my mothers have experienced, I'm experiencing it. Therefore, I will do anything, even if it means that I will kill, to not just get out of this economic pain, but this psychic pain that I am carrying, but I'm also carrying the burden of my parents. If we don't understand the depth of that, then unfortunately, we are going to repeat the same mistakes that we've seen. Dwelt on the mind and, and the pain of the victims and the next generation, the mm. children of the victims of the system of apartheid. Mm. 
what about what did apartheid do to the minds of those who benefited, yeah. those who were privileged by yes. the system? Yes. How do we address that mind yeah. um, in in the South African context? Because we've got this problem of these race relations mm -hmm. that are not shifting. Mm -hmm. You've spoken about the Mapogopo, mm -hmm. you're thinking, mm -hmm. you know, that brings the nation yeah. together. But mm -hmm. we know that that is so superficial. Yeah. Uh, how do we address it from both sides? Yes. Okay. I think so, so I think this is a really important question. And, and that is why I consciously call this collective trauma. Because I want us to understand that we are traumatized as a collective and as a society. Just as much as um, the disadvantaged side of our society was traumatized, but the advantaged side of our society was also affected because they were stripped of their own humanity. This sense that, you know, I'm okay as I am. I don't need to oppress another person. So there are a number of challenges. There's a lot of superior, superiority complex. And, and it's so ingrained, just like it's ingrained in the other group, that you just enter into spaces and you just feel inferior. And there's also this, like, you just enter in the spaces and you feel like you have, you're entitled. It's, you've inherited in, from generations. You're not even aware of it. And when people talk to you, you don't even get it. And it's a paradox that I know that especially most, like, uh, white kids that are growing up are really struggling with it mm. um, because they don't fully understand it. We haven't, again, understood how it damaged the psyche of those who have and, and, and that psyche of entitlement. So how do we then begin to make people aware that just as much as the others are holding that trauma, you are also holding the traumas? I know there's a group of people who, uh, who says, like, I don't know when to talk or how to talk. How does my, show, my, my power show up? And um, there's this guy who's a psychiatrist. I mean, he's really done a lot of work, who came back and, and, and done work in the farms. And he said, Guti, you know, one thing I had to learn, it was the most fundamental but powerful thing that my skin color by itself is just a trigger. Because you have to understand mm. something about trauma. Um, it, it's that when you've been traumatized and you haven't dealt with the trauma, anything that reminds you of the trauma becomes a trigger and it takes you through that pain mm. of the trauma. So just, he was like, for me to just even learn that before I even speak, my skin color triggers so many people. It helped me to begin to deal with my own burden of traumatization that I've actually carried. So we need a collective conversation. It's not an either or. It's not you the enemy. We have all been affected by this, and we need to start having conversations because I'm hearing it with my kids who are teenagers and the conversations they are having with their friends. They are struggling, even themselves. What is my identity as a white person, as a black person? How do we engage? What do I do with this privilege? What? And, and there's a bigger question about privilege and power that even I think the emerging um, privilege black class needs to have because we are acting exactly like the previous privileged people yeah. and perpetuating the same thing. So how do we re really begin to, to, to break the collective? All of us as a collective have been affected by this. Because unless we learn to take away the judgment and face the pain, we're not going to create a containing environment that enables us to have very tough discussions about our pain and to unstuck us as a society so we can move forward. Whose responsibility is it, governments, um, civil society? Where do we start? That's a very good question. Whose responsibility is it? And I usually say to people, let, if, if I could, I will start a movement that say, hashtag it ends with me. Mm. It starts with me as an individual. If I, as Nomfundo, can say, 
I am not going to perpetuate the same kinds of traumas that I experienced in my home. I will not let my children suffer. So I'm going to do the work. It starts with me. If you can start as a young person and say, I'm not going to let my girlfriend or boyfriend suffer the same pain that had happened because of the kinds of relationship that my parents have had. If I am a leader in an organization and I say, as a leader, I'm going to work on myself because I'm not going to make the people I lead to experience the same ways of being degraded and treated less than. And then, of course, in institutions, it is, it is all our responsibility. Because you, think, you see, the thing is, it takes one person who's awake to themselves to shift the areas in which they actually have an influence in. Don't go for, if you go for therapy, if you can't go for therapy, go for personal coaching. For example, here it says, we are, I insist when I get money from donors, I say to them, we operate in a wounded context. If you're going to give me this money, you must give me money for self-care for my staff. You must give me money for coaching for my managers. It is irresponsible of me to take anyone in this country and make them lead other people without giving them skills to deal with the wounding and the people who are wounded. Mm. So this is, for me, it's about just integrating the thinking of wounding in everything that we do yeah. as a society. But indeed, it is all of us. But if the people that are in leadership that shapes our policies and strategies could also begin to take this up and say, how do we really begin to integrate this in changing not just the socioeconomic architecture but also the psychological architecture of our society, then maybe, you know, there's hope for us. Oh, thank you, Nomfunda. Thank you so yeah. much. This conversation brings to mind the words penned by Nelson Mandela in his book, Long Walk to Freedom. I knew as well as I knew anything that the oppressor must be liberated just as surely as the oppressed. A man who takes away another man's freedom is a prisoner of hatred. He is locked behind the bars of prejudice and narrow-mindedness. I am not truly free if I am taking away someone else's freedom, just as surely as I am not free when my freedom is taken from me. The oppressed and the oppressor alike are robbed of their humanity." End quote. The road to freedom is longer than many anticipated it would be in the early days of the new South Africa. And the words of Mam Letambulu's song ring as true as they did in 1994. Not yet Uhuru. We are not yet free. Let the journey continue.